Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Let's pray. Pray with me. Jesus, we do come praising your holy name. Holy Spirit, we praise you. Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are our God, three in one, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present with your people. We praise you this day, giving thanks for your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you poured out on us. And we celebrate through our worship. Lord, being able to sing that, that great song that stories out what you have done for us. We praise you. We come now praising you because we know you to be the Lord God of all creation, the Lord of angel armies, and the Lord who said that all who were weary and heavy laden could come to you. And so we come, and we do what you tell us to do. We cast our cares upon you, because you are gentle and lowly in heart. You receive us in our need and weakness, so we come. We come confessing that we are weak. We are lost and broken without you. And so we come saying, we do want you to be our strength, to be that which we rely upon totally. Grateful, God, that you have said you would be. We come giving thanks for that reality. And we also come to worship you your beauty, your glory, your power. There is no one else like you, oh God. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are grateful to know that we can live in the hope that no matter what we face, you are with us and that you are coming back to set this whole broken world right one day and we will be in your presence forever and we thank you. But until then, God, we know that you have a mission for us, that we are your people, your church, and this is your church. And we come again this day submitting and surrendering ourselves and our lives and our wills and our ways to your purpose and pleasure. We ask you now to receive us and lead us and move us to be on that mission with you as we encounter your word today. Speak to our hearts, Jesus. Spirit, lead us. Have your way in us. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. And uh, be seated. I love to watch you guys worship. I just, I love to do that, especially this crew. Yeah. They, they love Jesus, and I'm so excited about what God is doing in their midst, in our student ministry. And I'm excited what God's doing all across the board here in River Bluff. Just some really great things are going on. Uh, next Sunday, let me just go ahead and get this on, on page with you. Um, next Sunday is uh, our service where we just focus on giving thanks. Just, we, we know it takes some of you longer to get prepared 
for Thanksgiving, you know. And so we want to get you there with a grateful heart before you get to the turkey, okay? Uh, and so next Sunday, we're going to give thanks in our service. We're just going to thank God for the grace he has shown us. Uh, we're going to share in communion as a part of that. So I encourage you to, to, to be here to, to participate in that. So he, he, God has given so much. And, and I, that just reminds me, too. I want to thank you for those of you who give generously and sacrificially and regularly uh, tithes and offerings uh, here at, at the river. Um, your, your gifts make a difference uh, here locally, globally. And uh, I, I just want to, I want to say thank you as your pastor. Uh, it, I, I don't know what you give or how frequently you do it. I don't keep up with those things intentionally, but uh, you do. And you and the Lord know. And I just want to say thank you uh, for, for that. Uh, I, I also want to say for those of you who were unable to be with us last Sunday, you missed a sunny Sunday. It, it, it wasn't one today. We needed the rain. I know we did, and I'm grateful for it. But oh my goodness, God delivered an incredibly beautiful, gorgeous day for our praise and play and picnic in the park. And I just thank him for it. We spent time talking and thinking about and searching the scriptures on what it means as a church to be family. Because that's God's design is that his people, when we gather as a local congregation, a local fellowship of believers, we wouldn't see ourselves just as this church organization that we are, would see ourselves as the family of God. And we looked at that in great detail and we talked about how a local church is to function in many ways like a, a nuclear family does. Today, I want, I want us to extend that, that view because in God's word, he extends that view uh, to the church global, and that we're to see the church global, all believers all around the world, as an extension of our family. That just like all of us have a nuclear family, we also have extended family, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins, and, you know, on, on down the family tree. And there is much that we can learn from our extended family about following Jesus, especially those who are enduring persecution. Today is one of two Sundays, uh, this, this last Sunday and this Sunday are one of two Sundays that are kind of recognized globally as a day for us to remember the persecuted church. And we chose today to, to do that. And I, I want us to do that because I do think there's much that we can learn from them and we need to embrace them. Maybe in ways we haven't been embracing our extended forever family. Um, I, I want to I do that by reading to you a story that I read this past week. Um, and it, it doesn't have to do necessarily with persecution, but I hope you'll make, I'll help you make the connection. Uh, here, here's how it goes. Uh, th this man reports, he says, I was sitting, eating, uh, when I was jarred by a, a large booming sound. He had gone to lunch at a fast food restaurant. And he said, I was uh, jarred by a loud booming sound coming from behind me. I wasn't sure what was going on, so I turned to look in the direction of the bathrooms, and I heard the thundering voice of a man obviously yelling at a child. I looked around the room at my fellow fast food connoisseurs, and only one couple seemed to be concerned. Everyone else could hear what was going on, though. None of the workers heard the shouting because they were all busy behind the counter working. So I immediately got up. 
I raced into the bathroom, not sure what I was going to walk into. When I opened the door, I saw a man bending over, yelling at the top of his lungs at a very young child. So I raised my voice and I said, can I help you with anything? The young boy reached out for me. The man turned and started yelling at me. I held eye contact with him and I repeated the question again. Can I help you with anything? The angry man took a step toward me and so I slowly took a step back. He said something else that we're not going to repeat. Um, and then I played the pastor card, he said. Sir, I'm a pastor and I was just wondering if I could help. He blew up at me again as he walked out of the bathroom. And then a woman came up and told me to get out of their business because the child was hers and everything was okay. But because I wasn't sure, I lingered a bit until the man yelled at me again. I watched until they left the restaurant, making sure that the child was not enduring physical harm. They made some passing comment toward me, and they left. I wasn't able to shake the intensity of that encounter for weeks. You know, he, he goes on to say this final thing uh, as, as he wrote about that. He said this, he said, when we hear the hurting, we want to help. When, when we see someone in need like that, someone who's being overwhelmed, uh, we, 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 we want to help. Now, what happened to that pastor in that restaurant is a microcosm picture of what I want us to think about today. You know, we, we've all heard that there are some really bad things happening to other Christians all around the world, that their lives are in danger. Some people, you know, in the church in the West are maybe a little bothered by it and want to do something. Others hear about that kind of plight and kind of turn it off, don't want to get involved. Others are like the workers at the restaurant. They're just so busy doing other things with their lives that they don't even notice. This pastor that day, he engaged because, quite frankly, what he heard enraged him. He was, he was moved by a rage, uh, you know, to protect that justice would come, that the weak would be cared for. And so, so he engaged. And quite frankly, my friends, that's kind of been my prayer around this message this week, is that there would be a little bit of rage not, not the kind of rage that would lead you to do something, you know, harmful to somebody else. But the kind of rage that would cause us to engage. That we would, when we, when we hear hurting people, we would be moved to help. And to do this, I want us to look at some words from Jesus today. Some words, quite frankly, that are filled with paradox. And so before we get to God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to start turning there. Before we get there, I want us to kind of define what a paradox is. And a paradox is simply a, 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 what seems like a contradictory statement, but it's actually true. Here are some, just a few, just to kind of wet your whistle on it to get you thinking about it. Um, here's one. If you know one thing, it's, or if I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. That's a paradoxical statement. Uh, another one is that this is the beginning of the end. Well, okay, what, what is that? where does that leave me? You know, this is one of my favorites. Don't go near the water until you learn how to swim. 
I understand the sentiment behind it, but let's come up with a different way to say it. Now, Jesus employed the use of paradox uh, in, in much of his teaching. In Matthew 16, verse 25, Jesus said, whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus said, the last will be first, and the first will, will be last. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it, it says, Scripture says, it's more blessed to give than to receive, to give a gift, than to receive one. And speaking of that, some of you are saying, what's with the shoeboxes? Okay? Well, these are gifts. These are gifts that are containing uh, toys and some clothing items and maybe some pens and pencils. I don't know what's in this box. Um, many of those boxes you see there are youth or students packed uh, this past week. Yeah. They, they did a wonderful job on that. They, they have primed the pump for the rest of us. And so next Sunday is the, the, the last day to bring your shoe boxes in um, because they've got to be distributed and, and sent off next week. So uh, we're going to be doing that next week. So one of the things I love about our church participating in Operation Christmas Shop, anybody can do this. This is simple. And I have been on the field uh, the foreign mission field and watch God use these boxes to open a child's heart to hear the gospel story and not only the children but their moms and dads it's a powerful little tool and so I I, I would encourage you and I'm, I'm just so grateful that we get to participate in that w would encourage you to uh to, to do that and again don't ne next Sunday's kind of the deadline on this um now uh, let me kind of get back to the message on the, the passage that we're about to look like look at is one of those places where Jesus kind of concentrates some paradoxical teachings. It's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, often called the Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes starts out this way, just to give you a little bit of, of uh, flavor for it, is Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus said, blessed, uh, some translations say happy, are those who mourn. Now, that seems paradoxical to us. We don't, we don't normally think that it's, you know, we're, we're blessed when we're, we're mourning. We don't normally look at people who are mourning and, and think, hey, you should be happy. You should celebrate, you know. Um, we we kind of find that a little hard to face. But Jesus uses these paradoxes. And the last of the Beatitudes, to me, is one of the greatest paradoxes that Jesus gives and I like to think of it as the persecution paradox. See, Jesus preaches this incredible message, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, on this mountainside. It kind of launched his ministry. But when he was doing that, Jesus knew what was in store for him. He knew the cross was coming. And not only that, Jesus knew what was in store for all who would follow after him. He knew persecution would come. And so I want us to look at that paradox of persecution from Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read together uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 this morning. And look at this kind of passage of the paradox of persecution. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. 
For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word uh, of the Lord. Now, that, that is, an, I think, just an incredible series of, of, of paradoxes. Now, I want to I point out what I just call some quick facts. Uh, just some very obvious things. It's not rocket science here, you know, just, but just things that are just easy to see here. But I just want to point them out for just a moment uh, in this kind of paradox of persecution passage. And, and it's just simply this. The, this last beatitude, for me, serves as a test for the rest. So with the eight beatitudes, the, the first seven, I think, can really be tested by this eighth one. If you can get this eighth one right, if you can, if you can become a person for whom you are glad when you're persecuted, you could rejoice even in your persecution, most likely the other seven are going to be operational in your life. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's, it's kind, of, kind of like a test. Um, you know, the second one is, uh, is this, this fact. This is the longest of the Beatitudes, this last one. It's the longest of Beatitudes, but I think it's the hardest to embrace. I think it's the hardest for us to go, oh, yay, I like that one. You know? Um, another fact about this Beatitude, it's the only Beatitude that actually has a command. It, we are told to be glad. That's in command tense. The language Jesus used there, it was a command. Be glad. Go, go do this. This last beatitude is the only beatitude with an explanation. It's the only one that Jesus expounds upon. Jesus knew we were going to need some more explanation around this particular beatitude. It's also the only beatitude that's repeated twice. Same theme. It's repeated in two different ways in verses 10 and 11. In, in both cases, Jesus uses the word blessed or happy are, are, are you. And he's saying, you know, because on this one, if you get this one right, you're doubly blessed. You're, you're doubly blessed if, if your life becomes to reflect this in the, in the kingdom of God. And lastly, this is the only beatitude that eventually gets addressed directly to us, to the listener. Up until then, uh, Jesus had always been using kind of the phrase, blessed are they, or blessed are those. Even in verse 10, he's still in that blessed are those. But he changes the person now, and he says, blessed are you, in verse 11. The other thing the eighth beatitude does is it really focuses on what I will call the applause of heaven when we engage at, at, at this level. Now, I, I think... This word from God, from Jesus, is important for us in our culture today. But, you know, e even then it was, it was a little bit out of place. Jesus, you know, jumps from talking about blessed are the peacemakers to the persecution. He moves from, you know, something that we think of as harmonious to something related to hostility. But see, not, not all attempts at reconciling and trying to make peace are going to succeed. No matter how hard we try, there are going to be some people for, with whom we cannot make peace. There are just people who refuse to live at peace. Just the, the, you, you know them. You've met them. I hope you aren't one. The person sitting next to you hopes you're not one. You know? See, we're, we're, we're though this is a hard beatitude to embrace, it's one that we need to really step into. And there's an interesting side note, and it's, it, it's, it's probably this one, is this idea of persecution 
in Jesus' mind and, and in the, the mind of those who wrote God's word is that th- this thing called suffering and, and persecution um, is common. We'll talk about that a little more fully in, in a minute. But in Jesus' day, there was a kind of a common attachment idea to somebody who was going through persecution. And that idea was that God wasn't pleased with him. If you were going through suffering of, of any kind, uh, in that day, the blame was always put back on you and that God was punishing you for something that you had done. It was a misplaced mindset, I, I, I know, and Jesus comes to correct it. If you really are looking for how that plays out, if you go read the book of Job, that misplaced mindset is all throughout the book of Job. That, you know, Job, you must have done something wrong for this calamity to have come upon you. And Jesus comes to reverse this in this paradoxical passage. He, he, he points this out. And there, there are three what I'll call paradoxes in the framework of all that Jesus teaches here. And I, I just want to take the, the rest of the time we have together to kind of move through those. And, and I'll, as we walk through each of those paradoxes, one of the things I hope that this will move us all to do is, is when, we, when we hear hurting, when we hear of hurting people, especially our brothers and sisters, that will want to help. Here's the first paradox about persecution. Persecution is a given. It's just, it's a given. Um, you know, some of us, some of us came to Jesus under a false gospel narrative that if we come to Jesus, everything's just going to be great. We won't suffer anymore. We'll be financially well off. You know, we'll experience our best life now. You know, all of that. And the Bible actually pretty much says the exact opposite thing for those who follow Jesus while we're still in this world. See, Jesus never taught a prosperity gospel. He, 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 he didn't do that. Now, you can have your best life now in Christ. It just, you know, we, we got we to argue over what you mean by best and what Jesus meant by best. You know, it, it, because it can quite, it can be different definitions. Look again at verse 10 of chapter 5. It says, blessed are those, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that word righteousness literally has to do with a pathway, a way, a way of following, a straight way of following Jesus. That great theologian and preacher, John Stott, said this. He said that when we follow Jesus, we should not be surprised if anti-Christianity hostility increases. What we should be surprised by is if it doesn't. As you follow Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised that, that you see more anti-Christian hostility maybe aimed at you. What you should be surprised at is if you don't. You know, Jesus said a lot about this. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, stop there for a minute, was Jesus persecuted? Okay, if they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you, those who follow him. In, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus kind of adds to this. He says, while you're in this world, you're going to suffer. As you're a follower of Jesus in this world, you will suffer. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus is prophesying, if you would, he is telling the disciples what their future is going to be like. 
Matthew 24, verse 9, he says, Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. That was the words of Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, with the very same message. That this, they continued this message of Jesus. Paul writes to young Timothy, who he has left in Ephesus to pastor a church. And in the church at Ephesus, where Timothy is the pastor, Paul writes in this letter. In 2 Timothy verse 3, we read these words. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It will happen. To the followers of Jesus in, in Philippi, Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 1. For you have been given the privilege of serving Christ, not only by believing in him, but also by suffering for him. It's not just about belief. It's about this practice, this life application. It's about stepping into this paradox of persecution for Christ's followers. The Apostle Peter who historians tell us he was crucified upside down because of his unswerving uh, devotion to follow Jesus. He wrote these words. He said, dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery troubles that are coming in order to test you. Don't feel as though something strange is happening to you, but be happy as you share Christ's suffering. See, friends, Jesus doesn't want us confused about this. Persecution is a given. And Jesus in this passage gives us two very specific reasons why we're going to be persecuted. The first one was this, is because of the life we live. If we're following Jesus, because of the life that we live. Look at, again closely at Jesus' words. He says in, in verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's a certain way of living. Now, you know, if mistreatment comes your way, it's not always because of righteousness. For instance, if you choose, willfully choose, not to wear deodorant, it is not persecution if people don't want to be near you. Just say it, okay? If you, when you try to communicate the gospel, are rude, mean-spirited, and obnoxious, it's not persecution that you're experiencing. You're just feeling the blowback of being mean-spirited. Okay? You can't claim everything is, is because of, of persecution. But, friends, as you seek, as you seek to walk in God's grace and as you seek to extend His love and mercy, as you begin to live out those first seven of the Beatitudes and experiencing life in, in the kingdom of God you can expect, expect persecution. Now, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus in all of its beauty, and it is beautiful, the gospel of Jesus in all of its beauty is still offensive. It is offensive to the world. It is offensive to people who want no other master than themselves. The gospel will always be offensive to that part of the world. So even when you speak of God's love, and you may do it from a life lived out of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you may live out all of those and speak the good news, you will still be persecuted. 
Because the gospel itself can be offensive. That's the way of righteousness. Second reason that Jesus gives us that we'll be persecuted is because of the Lord we love. First, because of the life we live, but secondly, because of the Lord we love. Because of the one in whom you're placing your faith. Because of the one in whom you're trusting that you're giving your life to. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, because you are my followers. Or ESV translation said, on my account. And friends, that actually helps us define what the word righteous is about. Because the word righteous is really about living the life of Jesus. It's about following his life, his, his life model and his teachings. So here's the question. Were people upset with Jesus? When Jesus walked this earth, were people angry at him? Well, yeah. So angry, they got so angry with him that they wanted to murder him. They plotted on, on numerous occasions to put him to death because they were so angry. And you will be persecuted. Have you ever heard of the phrase guilt by association? You will be persecuted because of your association with Jesus. But in the eyes of our Savior, that's a beautiful thing. That you would be associated with him. You know, and, and we need to think about those who are being persecuted right now. And remember that they're hurting and, and, and they need our help. Friends, the first paradox of this, this persecution is that it's given. The second point of paradox of, of this is persecution is a gift. It's a given, but it's also a gift. Look, at, look back at verse 11. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. When, when those things happen, and I, again, I, I hope you notice that, that, that shift from those who are persecuted to you when you're persecuted. Our Father in Heaven applauds when you face persecution. He applauds you. See, when people insult you, when people persecute you or falsely say things uh, about you behind your back or, or even to your face or to others, God notices that. God remembers your faithfulness. And the Bible tells us God rewards. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to look real carefully with me at the three ways Jesus describes that kind of persecution that comes. The first word he uses is the word revile. And revile simply means verbal abuse. It means to take on verbal abuse. And, you know, it's insulting language. And we see this picture of uh, happening to Jesus on the cross. The Bible tells us that... It, that Jesus, while he was on the cross in Matthew 27, that people were passing by. And they shouted abuse and they were shaking their heads in mockery. Jesus experienced being reviled. The second word that Jesus used here is the word persecute. And this, this word actually has to do with enduring physical abuse. So the first is more of a verbal abuse. The second is a, a physical abuse. It's, it means to like chase down or chase away. This word is actually sometimes used in, in, in the Greek to uh, describe hunting an animal. Hunting down, tracking down an animal. The third word that Jesus has used here is the, is the phrase falsely accused. And this has to do with character abuse. Uh, it, it may be better translated character uh, assassination. It's when your, your credibility, your reputation, you know, maybe in the marketplace is, is, is trashed. 
Um, in, in our modern culture, we might think of the phrase cancel culture uh, because that's basically what's going on. Jesus knew that. People lied about Jesus behind his back and, and in front of him. King David, he knew about this character assassination. He wrote in Psalm 35, malicious witnesses testify against me. They accuse me of crimes I know nothing about. Friends, people will talk. They're going to say things about you behind your back. But when that happens, you're in good company with Jesus. They, they did that same thing to him. Now, I think it's easy for us to kind of accept that persecution is a given. I think it's harder to accept this kind of second paradox that persecution is a gift feels a little bit like a stretch for us but when we realize that that God congratulates us when we face persecution that he gives the gift of you know the kingdom of heaven to those who are ambushed and you know caught by the anger of others see persecution triggers in some unique way God to pour out his blessings on us some of you are familiar with a, a missionary who was martyred by the name of Jim Elliott. Uh, he was martyred while he was trying to share the gospel. And Jim Elliott said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, most of us, we're not experiencing any kind of, you know, any kind of devastating you know, pernicious persecution in our lives for our faith these days. But many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. And when we hear about that, our, our hearts need to be moved to help. Well, let's jump to the third paradox. The third paradox is this, is that persecution brings gladness. Now, again, there's a reason this is a paradox. But look at the words of Jesus that he gives us in, in verse 10. They're mind-boggling. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in great, is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. When do you usually rejoice at news? At good news? You know, someone comes and tells you they're, they just found out they're pregnant. We rejoice. You know, somebody tells you it's their birthday. Somebody tells you that, you know, uh, they, they, they just want a million dollars and they're giving you a tenth of it. Uh, you would rejoice. We rejoice at good news. Very few of us ever rejoice at bad news. You know, news that will entail our suffering. Um, I, I remember, you know, not long ago, uh, being in Roper Hospital and a cardiologist whom I did not know told me, you have a heart valve issue and if we don't replace it you're not going to make it much longer I did not go yippee I didn't rejoice with glee there was no gladness in my soul because we don't rejoice at news that involves our suffering potentially you know we just don't but God's word tells us Jesus said there in this area of persecution there is a way for us to actually be glad and again Jesus even gives it as a command because he desperately he wants us to see why to search the scriptures and try to understand Jesus why would you command me to be glad 
at this news that I'm going to be persecuted. When Luke recorded this teaching of Jesus, listen to how he recorded it, because the word that's used rejoice here literally means to leap with joy. Luke in Luke 6.23 records it this way, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy when you're persecuted. See, Jesus isn't implying that we should be happy about the persecution itself. We should leap for joy over what it represents. And what it represents is that you are associated by the persecutor with Jesus. That they look at your life and they connect you to the Lord of all creation. They connect you to the one who died on the cross to save you from your sin. They connect you to that that loving Lord. They, they, They see him in you. Friends... That's worth jumping for joy over. That's worth, that's, you need something to say yippee about, there you go. That someone has connected you to Jesus. Friends, every Christian who seriously seeks to follow Jesus will face some flack. You're just, you're going to face some flack somewhere, somehow, someday it's going to come. Because persecution is a given. But there is a way to take that, that gift and be glad in it. This is one of those times where the rewards are definitely worth the risk because the rewards will follow you through eternity. But here's something, and something that I think is important for us to learn from our brothers and sisters in places where persecution is so prevalent. They speak of a gladness while facing persecution now. They they talk about a gladness. And we need to, as the Bible tells us, we need to remember, we need to think about them. Uh, Look look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 3. It it, it says this, keep on loving each other and brothers and sisters. So this is a verse about family. This is a a verse about, you know, in our case, it's going to be described, our extended family. Because there are are very few Christians in America that are going through intense persecution. He, He goes on to say, remember those in prison. He's talking about the family of God that have been in prison for their faith. As if you were there yourself. Remember also those who, being mistreated, as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. One translation says, don't forget about those in prison. Suffer with them as though you were there yourself. Share the sorrow of those being mistreated as though you feel their pain in your own bodies. See, we're we're called on this issue by God to experiencing something deeper. We're not supposed to just have some kind of passing pity for those who are being persecuted. There are brothers and our sisters who are suffering. Friends, when it comes to persecution of our extended family, we need to be proactive and no longer passive. We, we need to do this and not do it. We, we need to be proactive and no longer passive. And the only way we'll really come to that is if we will take time to peer into their suffering. And I want us to take about two and a half minutes to do that. If you'll run that video, please. What if your church had to meet in secret? What if spies watched your every move? What if following Jesus meant you faced violence or even death? Millions of Christians around the world experience these kinds of challenges every day. 
and these are the top 10 countries where faith costs the most. Number 10, India. Hindu extremists want to rid India of Christians and they are prepared to use extreme violence to achieve their goal. At number nine, Nigeria, where more Christians are murdered for their faith than in any other country in the world. Iran is at number eight. Secret house churches risk being raided by the police. If caught, be prepared for a long prison sentence. Number seven, Yemen, a war-torn country where Christians, if discovered, face the death penalty. Eritrea is at number six. If your faith is discovered, you can be imprisoned without trial in appalling conditions. Often, your loved ones don't even know if you're still alive. Number five, Pakistan. Say the wrong thing in Pakistan, and the notorious blasphemy laws could see you accused of insulting Islam and sentenced to death. At number four is Libya, a lawless land with no freedom of speech or belief. Somalia is number three on the list. Somali Christians can't reveal their faith to anyone or they could be killed, even by their own families. Number two is Afghanistan. If they find out you're a Christian, you have a stark choice. Flee the country or be killed. And at number one, North Korea, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Informants are everywhere. Discovery means death, either by execution or by being worked to death in a labor camp. At least 340 million Christians around the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Where's our heart in this? What, what is this? How does this move us? Or are we just passive in it? Because God calls us to be proactive. To, to keep loving is what Hebrews 3, 13 tells us. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Suffer with them as though we were there ourselves. But that's hard to do. We, we've got to figure out how do I put myself in their prison cells? How do I put myself in their shoes? When, when believers are mistreated, you know, for their faith, we, we need to show them that we're in harmony with them in some way. We can't just look the other way because the scriptures tell us that we are literally joined with them in Christ Jesus. We are literally joined with them in Christ Jesus. And when we hear the hurting Will we want to help? And, and friends, it's time to engage. If you haven't already. I know some of you have. But if you haven't, there needs to be a little bit of a rage that raises up inside of you, you know, over this issue and not ignore it, not, not turn away from it. Now, I know that when things seem insurmountable and you think, you know, well, what can I do? And, you know, what can be done? Oftentimes we feel paralyzed. And so we're not proactive. We just kind of become passive in it. I want to give you three real quick, very simple. This is not rocket science. Okay? Very, very simple steps. Just three very, very simple steps. Here's the first one. Start where you are. 
you're here today. You've walked through the scriptures, you, you know, with me. You, you know what God's call is. You may not have done a single thing about this yesterday or any day before. Start where you are. Second thing, use what you have. Start where you are using what you have. You don't have to have a lot to do a little. I want to see hands on this one. How many of you have one of these? Okay. This little thing right here can connect you to almost immediate suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world. This morning I went on to, I'm an Android dude, I went on to the Google Play Store and I just typed in the Google Play Store, persecuted Christians. And apps came up. Two of the apps I've been using for quite a while, one from Open Doors and one from Voice of the Martyrs, they came up and what, what I get from them is I get notified when something happens to our brothers and sisters around the world. I get notified when, like two days ago, a pastor was kidnapped in uh, Nigeria. And more than likely, he won't be found alive. I get uh, a, a, a text sent, a notification sent that lets me know when uh, a brother or sister in Christ is facing a trial in one of those 10 countries. Um, simply for their faith. And it allows me to pray. Now that's not doing a lot, you might say. I disagree. Because the number one thing that people who are going through persecution ask for is prayer. They ask for their brothers and sisters to pray for them. Start where you are with what you have. And then the third one is just simply do what you can. If all you can do is pray, pray. And I, when I say that, I, it, it makes it sound like I'm diminishing prayer. I'm not. You can all pray. I can pray. We, we, we can pray for them. But we can also give. If the Lord leads you and you have the means and resources to give beyond your tithes and offerings to your local church, give to these causes through organizations that are good organizations to do this in. Sin Relief, uh, an organization of Southern Baptist churches, is a great organization to give to that, that helps in these areas. Not specifically, more generally, but are ministering and serving there. So start where you are with what you have. And do what you can. All of us can do something. Jesus reminded his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. He, he tells us there that to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much more is given, much more is required. We can all pray. But we can all do something else most likely too. And, and let me suggest one more last thing about this praying thing. Um, I, I put it in your notes and I need to change it. I... I, I, I I felt corrected by the Spirit this morning. But in, in your notes, it'll say this. Pray for the persecuted church, but first learn about it. I need to change that to say, pray about the persecuted church, and while you're praying, learn about it. Don't, don't, don't wait to pray. Just start praying. The Holy Spirit will lead you to pray, but you need to take some time to learn about what's going on. I, I want to encourage you. Um, if uh, if you're in a small group, that you have conversation in your small group about maybe one day as a small group doing the study I am in, the letter in, 
is a study on, uh, uh, that you can access through Right Now Media. It's an incredible study uh, and, uh, about those who are being persecuted. If you consider River Bluff Church your home, you can have free access to Right Now Media. If you'll just call the church office, they'll help you get registered to do that. Uh, it's this Christian website that has lots of Christian resources, and one of those is this I am in, and it's, it's the story, the real life stories of people who were persecuted and literally had the, the, the letter N put on their, not the English letter N, but the letter N put on their door um, by ISIS, and it meant these were, these were followers of the Nazarene, and it also meant that they were coming back to take you and your family, and you would probably never be seen or heard from again. See, we can't just close our eyes to this. God's called us as his people. We're, we're united together in Christ. And so he's called us to, to, to pray, to give, to care, to, to hear the cry for help and our hearts hurt and be moved to do something. And so this morning to close our time together, we're going to pray. And I want to lead us through some moments of guided prayer. And when I pray for those being persecuted, like the other day when that, that uh, notification came through about that pastor who had been kidnapped, I, I try to, in my prayer for them, put myself in their shoes. I try to imagine what that would be like for me. And I, 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 I have to tell you, it's hard in our nation, but I try to. And so what I want to do is just walk you through a guided prayer that's going to ask you to imagine yourself. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for them. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to close your eyes, bow your head, and I just want to walk us through a time of prayer. And I want to ask you to imagine yourself in a local family church in China. And you're attending a meeting in secret And there's no environmental controls in this room. If it's hot, it's hot. If it's cold, it's cold. There are no padded, cushiony chairs. And the threat of being arrested and imprisoned hangs in the air because you're meeting in an unregistered, illegal church. Would you pray for them? Now I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself living in Sudan where as a Christian you live with a constant fear of being killed or maybe even worse than that sold into slavery. You live in the constant fear of having the structure in which you call home destroyed or the church where you worship destroyed. Pray for them.
Now I want you to think of, imagine yourself living in Afghanistan. And you come home and you find that, that dreaded mark that you were a follower of the Nazarene painted on your door. And you know that means they're coming back. That you could convert to Islam. When they do, you could flee to a refugee camp somewhere. Or you could be killed. Pray for them. I'm going to ask you to do something that doesn't require imagination according to scripture. I want you to pray as one who is joined to the persecuted church because in Christ Jesus you are. Pray for yourself right now. Lord Jesus, we come. We come knowing that those who are being persecuted all around the world, when they ask us to pray, ask us to pray for several things. They ask us to pray, Lord, that they would have access to your word for encouragement. They ask that you bring encouragement into their spirit, Holy Spirit. Would you do that? They ask, oh God, for hope in you. God, would you fill them with hope? And God, they so often ask for gospel conversations to occur between their captors and their oppressors and themselves. God, would you grant that? We pray for the peace of Christ to fill them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we close with our final song, I'm gonna ask you to do one more thing today. I wanna ask you to stand with me. And a passage of scripture is going to come up on the screen that for the persecuted church is a matter of life and death almost. We, we, we hear these words and we love them and they fill us with joy, but I don't know that we feel like they're a matter of life and death. So I want to ask you to read this with me out loud, imagining that it was. Join me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.